we are going to start a series on the Psalms. Uh, we won't be able to go through all 150 of them, uh, but we want to look at the Psalms and especially look at two aspects, praise and lament. And uh, to kick that off this morning, we're going to watch a Bible Projects video that whips through a presentation of the book of Psalms. So we're going to watch that, and then I'll come back and we'll jump into our sermon for this morning. The book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73 actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning, to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of book 1 because most of the poems in book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here actually the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in in the messianic king will be blessed 
precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God. He will be delivered and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic kingdom. Then book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic king over all of the nations. This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David, but now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result in destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. 
Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. You're probably thinking, wow, that was a lot packed into a video, and you might want to watch it again. Um, the Psalms, lament and praise. And I'm going to just get it out of the way because I know some of you are waiting for it. We have a juxtaposition between Psalms and praise. Lament and praise. As you saw in the video, a third of the Psalms have to do with lament. And lament is actually uh, quite a big deal then. What is lament? These are expressions of deep sorrow, grief, and regret over human struggles. Some of the psalms, and we'll find out as we go through this series, some of them are indiv individual psalms of lament, and others are corporate or community-focused. Lament looks unflinchingly at the present evil being experienced but expresses hope in God for his salvation and his intervention. We live in a world of pain and evil and sorrow. And lament can help us to weather the storm. Lament is not hopeless crying and despair, but actually it's a, an expression of faith. Doubt is not opposite to faith. Despair is. Lament is not a failure of faith but an act of faith. We cry to God because we have a relationship with Him and that relationship matters. Lament, it's been said, is the language of living between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. So we want to look quickly this morning at five different aspects of lament and how that will help us deal with the hardships of life. Number one, lament gives us permission to be honest and transparent with God. 
Lament gives us permission to be honest and transparent with God. So no mask. Complete transparency and honesty. And by the way, whether you're transparent and honest, God sees it all anyway. Our honesty affirms God's power and dominion over every single aspect of our lives. We express full disclosure and honesty, and that opens the door to healing. We can express our uncensored feelings to God. He hears us, and He cares. I think we tend to deny honest pain, and we jump too quickly from loss to acceptance. So we skip over lament. Yes, our faith does proclaim hope, but death, pain, and grief are still real. Lament permits us to ask the question, why? Number two, lament challenges our need for success and control. We want to believe we can control our way to a trouble-free life. Wow, wouldn't that be sweet, we think. And yet, bad things happen to good people. God is just. As Scripture says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He wouldn't be just if He didn't. We don't always have an answer to the why of our suffering. Job didn't. In fact, he waited 38 chapters before God spoke up. We think everything has to have an explanation. We call it rationalism. But sometimes it just doesn't have an explanation. Number three, lament recognizes the difficulty of living in an evil world. Lament names the oppressor unflinchingly. Lament is honest about what is wrong. Sin is not only a personal failure, failing, it is often also communal and structural. We live in a fallen world with all of the consequences and implications that are part of that. Scripture tells us that even creation groans and longs for release. Lament releases us from the lie that suffering begins and ends with us. Actually, lament can also be an expression of solidarity. Solidarity with others that are suffering. Notice, even God laments. Jesus wept over Lazarus, over the lostness of Jerusalem. God was grieved by the lostness at the time of Noah, by the apostasy of the Israelites with the golden calf incident. In fact, Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit groans within us. Number four, lament points our hearts toward seasons of faith. Lament points our hearts toward seasons of faith. Failure, tragedy, and sorrow are an expected part of faith. I know, we love the mountaintop. But the truth of the matter is that we grow more in the valley than on the mountaintop. I heard it said once that when you work out, the way to build muscle is to tear it. It gets stronger that way. Uh, I'm not well-versed in that, uh, but life is like that as well. As we lament, we wrestle with God. Lament turns us toward God, where despair tempts us to run from Him. Lament has a very unique purpose. Trust. Trust. 
We have a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, and our sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. You've heard me say it many times from the pulpit that there are two things that you have to remember. One is that God is sovereign. The other one, that He's a loving Heavenly Father. If He was only sovereign but not loving, we would be afraid of Him. If He was only loving but not sovereign, He would be useless. Two sides of a coin. God is sovereign, and He's loving at the same time. Number five, lament refines our pain, increasing our intimacy with God. Lament refines our pain, increasing our intimacy with God. The lament psalms assure us that sorrow can bring us before God's throne. David, King David, is brutally honest and open about what he feels. In fact, sometimes some of the psalms, some sections of the psalms scare us. It's so terribly honest. I don't look for pain. I'm not a masochist. But pain can draw me closer to God. A complaint is an accusation against God that maligns his character. But a lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. God is good all the time. Lament is also a proof of our relationship with God, proof of our connection to the great caregiver. The Lament Psalms move seamlessly back and forth between lament and praise, sorrow and hope, pain and the glory of God. It seems obvious that a more biblical perspective is that to increase faith, you must explore pain. Have you allowed yourself to lament? Or have you confused faith with optimism and a denial of reality? Are you going through difficult challenges, wrestling with God because of a circumstance that you consider unfair? Beyond individual lament, I also believe that as a church family, we need to consider how to practice lament together. And I'm not really sure that we have done that a lot. You might not be there yet, but for us, for us as Christ followers, lament will also lead us to praise. There is hope. The hope is as real as the pain and the struggle. We don't deny either one. So this morning, Pastor Mo, as we've looked at these five different aspects of lament and what they do for us, um, anything stand out with you? Anything? What are your thoughts? Oh, that's... I, I really connected with... Um, with that first section where you talked about the fact that it's about lament is honesty and transparency. Um, I know for me, uh, growing up, uh, you hear the, you hear the things like, um, you know, something happens and you hear someone say, well, don't, don't feel bad. Uh, it'll, it'll get better or don't be sad. It'll get better. And I think, I think a lot of times we, we end up doing that as, as believers, we, we, we try to say that to each other and we say, you know, in a, in a moment of grief and, and in a moment of, you know, where things are, are disappointing for us, um, we say things like, um, like, 
you know, don't worry, it'll all be okay, or or don't feel bad, it'll all be okay. And and I think for me, what this what lament does is it it actually says to us, actually, we need to give um, we need to give weight and we need to give validation to our feelings, right? And how we feel is actually really important. And actually, God made us that way. And so for us to be honest and and open with our feelings, and I realize I say that, and and all of the guys are like, what you want me to express my feelings, um, but. But I, I think this is one of those things where, where lament actually allows us and gives room for us to be honest with, with what it is that we're feeling. Yeah, so it's, it's not escapism. And, and maybe that's the problem, that we, we, we brush over the pain and we say it'll be okay. And, and, and we, we, it's almost like we super spiritualize it as if the pain and the lament, the expression of it, isn't spiritual. Yeah, and that's that's um, that's one of those things where where I think we we struggle at, in the church to 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 find that balance because we 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 also want to give the hope, right? Like that's that's the that's the message that we want to give. We want to give the hope in the midst of pain, but in at sometimes I think what we end up doing is we end up giving hope before we've acknowledged the pain, and 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 as a result, what ends up happening is we end up creating. And I, I Brian Dirksen made a made a comment at a worship. A gathering that I was at, he said, if we don't lament, um, what we're doing is we're actually producing spiritually unhealthy Christians. Yeah. Um, we're, we're doing something that's going to be, um, that's, that's going, that's not going to be a full expression of, of, of who we are and what, what God is all about. I, uh, Friday is my day off and I was given a task by my wife to, to sweep and mop the house. Uh, and, 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 and I was thinking that maybe the illustration here, if I just push all of the dirt under the rug, now maybe she won't see it, but I push it all under the rug, but when I do that, I'm not dealing with it. Right. I actually have to acknowledge it to be able to deal with it. And I think that's part of lament, is that we acknowledge the pain and the sorrow and the struggles we're going through, and that's the first step to dealing with it. And then you get to hope. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pastor Moe. Well, last week we celebrated pain and hope, death and resurrection. Life has both. This week, find ways to allow yourself to lament before God, to be honest with Him, and allow Him to carry you through. And be reminded of your hope, a hope that is firmly grounded in Christ Jesus and His victory on the cross. Amen. Amen.